invite you to turn with me uh, to the book of Joshua. We'll be walking through the Old Testament scriptures that were read for us a few moments ago in Joshua chapter 6. We've uh, been walking through the early portions of Joshua the last couple of Sundays, and so we come to a familiar portion for many of us from when we were even children where we see Joshua and Israel surrounding Jericho, and God makes the walls come a-tumbling down. Um, the, the scope of God's redemption is cosmic. It's not just for this segment of population over here or over there. It is truly cosmic, God reconciling all things to himself through Jesus Christ. Uh, his grace extends as far as the curse is found. And we see that here, at least in the first fruits of that, in Joshua 6, in the fall of Jericho. What we see is, is God's prophet leading God's people to cleanse the land. Why? In order that they and those with them might commune with the living God. It's the first fruits of redemption for that land. And in some ways, it's the first fruits of a new world being redeemed through Jesus Christ, who is the greater and the final Joshua. That's where we're heading. Would you just uh, pray with me just for a few moments here as we begin? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word, which is living and active. As we open your word now, would you open our eyes, soften our hearts and our ears that we might hear and receive that which you have for us, that we might behold Christ more clearly in your word, becoming more like him by your spirit. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be born of water and of the Spirit, okay? Now, last Sunday, Pastor Dave preached on chapters 4 and 5 of Joshua. And if you remember nothing else about that passage, remember this. It was Israel being born again as they crossed through the waters of judgment on the, the Jordan River. They then applied the sign of circumcision. Why? In order to commune with the living God. The next step they do is they, they celebrate the Passover feast, one another in the land, dwelling in the land at peace with God. They commune with the living God. But remember, before they were able to commune with God, they had to consecrate themselves. They had to be cleansed. They had to be born again in order to commune. Now, as we turn the page on their story to Joshua chapter 6, we see that what was applied to Israel, to the people is now going to be applied to the land. What happened to Israel will happen to the land. What began on the far side of the Jordan now begins on the near side of the Jordan, right by the walls of Jericho. And we'll see again that cleansing must proceed communion. Cleansing has to proceed communion, which means that God's fire of judgment will fall in the same way that it falls upon His altar Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. We see a people afraid of God. Israel was the population about the size of all of Nebraska. And you can't hide the population the size of Nebraska in the wilderness. And all of Nebraska crossing the Jordan River is a pretty big sight not alone that Jericho has seen Israel across that Jordan River for over four decades, and they know Israel is a coming. 
As soon as they step foot on the far side of the Jordan, Jericho shuts themselves up within their walls. They know that the God who plagued Egypt is on their, on their soil now. Canaanites in the land were afraid of God. And we see here that Israel is fearing God in the way that he commands. Look at verse 2. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hands with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Then uh, this, this you shall do for six days. Israel is fearing Yahweh, fearing the Lord. See, God speaks to Joshua as if the task is already completed. I've given Jericho into your hands, he says. All that remains for you is to walk in the way that I have set before you. Now, let's get a little context here. Of what is Joshua facing as he goes to the walls of Jericho? So just turn your eyes a little bit further up the page. Joshua 5, verse 13. Joshua was by Jericho. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? That's a very good question to ask. And he said, the, the commander said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet. For the place you are standing is holy. And so Joshua did so. That's step one of fighting a big battle. Joshua is visited by the commander of God's army who exhorts Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Does it remind you of another story? Remind you of another of leaders of God's people, Moses by the burning bush? God is elevating Joshua as a new Moses. And he begins the conquest, barefoot on holy ground. See what happened to Israel will happen to the land. They began on holy ground with Moses. Now they begin on holy ground with Joshua. And this gives us a clue that what this conquest is all about is that the, it's the first fruits of, of holiness being spread to the entire land, a land defiled by sin. Joshua and the Israelites are born again to take dominion, to spread the holiness of God to a people and a place. Throughout Scripture, as the people go, so goes the land. Israel begins on holy ground here to spread the holiness of God to this land. And so they do. If you look at verse 4 and following, Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when you make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So begins the conquest and the destruction of a people and a place. Now, Whenever we spend time examining the conquest of the land, I think there's a tension that we feel in the fact that this is a good God, and he's commanding devastation. He's commanding the utter ruin of a place, death to men, to women, and children alike. To scroll down to verse 21, we would read, And they, Israel, devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, with the edge of the sword. This is God's word. Like you, my imagination is clear enough to see these events and shudder. And these texts make me uncomfortable. 
But this is God's word. This is his will, his command. His people will also suffer his wrath when they disobey. And now, yes, this type of warfare that Israel is to carry out, it was practiced in Joshua's day by other nations. And yes, this people in the land of Canaan had refused God's uh, coming to them over centuries. They continued to pollute the land with false worship. But the reality of this warfare remained awful and perhaps giving us a sense of the wretchedness of sin. But I think as we look at the, the, the realities of this text, we also have to kind of keep in mind, it's helpful, I think, to frame what's happening here in this conquest in the way that the Bible does. The, the Bible frames this as a, a holy warfare. That Israel's consecration to Yahweh is now being carried out into the land. That the land will be consecrated to God through Israel's actions. There is a cleansing for Israel. There is a cleansing for the land. There is a communion for Israel. There will be a communion for the land. The conquest of the land begins with Israel's commander standing on holy ground, bowing to the commander of God in worship of the living God. The details here read like a religious ceremony, a religious sacrifice. Priest and tabernacle furniture are mentioned more often than soldiery. The work applied to the people of Israel will now be applied to the land. Look at verses 6 and following. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass before you or before the ark of the Lord. Now, I would venture to say that you're going to search long and hard through the annals of history to find this military strategy repeated with any amount of success, right? Today you hear of drone strikes, you, you, hear, of, uh, you hear of carriers that have nuclear capabilities, our Department of Defense spends time looking for Tom Cruise resurrecting Maverick. That's the strategy. You're not marching around cities and blowing horns and screaming. Long siege warfare of walled cities where you would starve out a people or they would die by disease. That was the manner of defeating a walled city, the manner of defeating enemies. This way, however, lends itself to a couple of things. That God alone can accomplish such a victory. Could Israel take credit for this kind of a victory? God promised that he would go before Israel that he would fight on their behalf. When Israel failed earlier, it was because they failed to trust that promise. God alone can accomplish such a victory. To consecrate a land, that work will be accomplished by God through the obedience of his people. And secondly, this does seem to affirm that this is a holy war, that holiness, again, is to draw near to God, to, allow, to be allowed into his presence. The conquest is God's way of consecrating a land for a consecrated people to redeem a land and a people for communion with him. So just we're going to look at a few details here. Why do I try to frame this or why do I see this as a holy war and what does that mean? But I, there's details in here that read like this is all about holiness spreading throughout the land. Again, it begins on holy ground. It's not about ethnicity or race. It's not about politics or a simple land grab. It's about consecrating a people and a place to the living God. Ground zero for this warfare is on holy ground. 
Secondly, Jericho, as we read throughout scriptures, is known as the city of palms. It reminds us of the Garden of Eden. It reminds us of the tabernacle structure where there was patterns of trees woven into the fabric, represented by the wood and its structure. The procession. What is leading the procession of this army? What is it? The Ark of the Covenant. Imagery here of the tabernacle. God's presence going before them to fight on their behalf. Did you notice the number seven come up quite a bit? A lot, wasn't it? Signifying completion, the anticipation of a week concluding and a new week beginning, a new creation. What happens on the seventh day is that rest is given, rest for a new world. And that is the aim of all ritual worship given to Israel, that they would find rest and communion with the living God, renewal, restoration, reconciliation, holy warfare for the cleansing of the land. Even the destruction of the land is described by fire. And in the Hebrew, it's not just a fire, it's the fire. And where is the fire from? But it's the fire that God gives and burns on his altar. Even the language of destruction reads like sacrificial language. The last item that I'll point out here is that they're blowing horns. You notice what kind of horns they're blowing? Ram's horns. Now, I didn't know this throughout, except for studying here. And the only time in Israel's life when the ram's horn was used or blown was to announce the year of Jubilee. That's like seven weeks of seven years, 49 years. And then the, the ram's horn is blown, and all that next year is the year of Jubilee. So long and short of it is Israel is announcing to the land this is the Lord's year of Jubilee. All that was indebted is now forgiven. All that was handed out to others is now given back. All of this belongs to God. The land will have rest, for it is the Lord's. It wasn't just a random horn being blown around the walls of Jericho. This was a pronouncement that this is the Lord's Jubilee. This belongs to Him, and He will have it. So all of these details, I think, help us to at least frame it to see God is doing something in his holiness. Whatever the conquest is about, it must be about consecration of a people and a place. It must be about a cleansing of a land in order that those in the land can commune and dwell with the living God. For centuries, that land had shirked Yahweh and his word. In the same way that God had dealt with Egypt, so now God will deal with the Canaanites. The question remains, though, will Israel obey? Now that they're on this side of the Jordan, they've crossed the river, will they remain faithful? Verses 12 and following, Joshua rose early in the morning. The priests took up the ark of the Lord, and seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on. They blew the trumpets continually. Armed men were walking before them. Verse 14, the second day they marched around the city once, returned to the camp. So they did for six days. In short, Israel is following the word of God. When the Bible talks about fearing the Lord, this is the kind of obedience that it has in mind. It's an awe of God and his word. Beholding God in his glory and might. A humble trust and reliance upon him and his acting for our salvation. For six days, the people march in obedience in Jericho's wall, 
and their people tremble in fear. See, this land had known of Yahweh since the days of Abraham. They had oppressed the patriarchs. They had rejected allegiance to God. Throughout the centuries, they continued to reject God in worship of false gods. Even after hearing of Yahweh's deliverance of God's people from Egypt, it is only Rahab who acts in faith to hide the spies, to believe that Yahweh is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And now the people have seen Israel for weeks end across the river and six days marching around the Ark of the Covenant leading the procession and yet hardness of heart leads to still no repentance on their end. Time and mercy have been extended and yet hardness of heart remains. Rest is promised in this land through this war, this holy war. But God's altar fire of wrath must first burn hot. Verse 15. The seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day, marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on, the, on that day when they mar- that they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpet, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Down to verse 20. So the people shouted. Trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. The wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Who could achieve such a victory? Who could achieve such devastation? On the seventh day, rest is won for the land and for God's people, which includes, of course, Rahab's family. Verse 24. And following, they burned the city with fire, everything in it, only the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and the iron they put in the treasury of the house of the Lord. This is exactly what God commanded, verse 25. But Rahab, the prostitute in her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Conquest shows us that God's condemnation of evil serves to save those who hide themselves in God. Condemnation of evil serves to save those who hide themselves in God. Perhaps others in this destruction would have pleaded mercy and were granted such mercy. That was very common for this type of warfare. Like Rahab, the only hope for mercy is in the midst of God's wrath here. His judgment is swift, but his grace is also sure. See, Jericho's had opportunity to turn. Neighboring cities are on alert and are warned. Will they turn? We'll see that some in Canaan, down the next few chapters, that some will turn and be saved. But only those who submit to Yahweh, who conform to his way, only those who hide themselves in God's prophet will be saved. Will Israel remain steadfast and true and faithful to their word, to God's word? Here they remain faithful, they are obedient, and God gives the victory. The people marched with priest and ark in procession to lead the way. They blew trumpets, they gave a mighty shout, and the walls come tumbling down. All that God said to destroy, they destroyed. What was commanded to remain was spared. Tabernacle worship is possible. Rahab is saved and family as well. But to read only a few paragraphs later, will Israel remain faithful? What do we see in the next chapters? 
Did they devote everything to destruction? Well, just a little bit for myself, says a certain Achan. And all the people suffered for his disobedience. The sin of one man affected all. God's kindled wrath is once again swift, even against Israel in the land, against his own people who are disobedient, who rebel. And it was only when God's prophet, when Joshua intercedes on their behalf, that God brings peace. See, Joshua was God's prophet, which means that he is God's instrument of judgment to condemn the wicked, but then also to vindicate God's righteous. Jericho, that was the first fruits of God's judgment on a wayward and rebellious land. That judgment was to fall on the entire land. Jericho was the model for those in the land and for Israel as well. A model of salvation. Hide yourself in the prophet of God for Israel, for Jericho, for all the land. See, the wages of sin is death is what the Bible tells us. God's wrath at Jericho displays this in horrific detail. In our sin, all humanity has earned the wages of death. And yet God's people in God's mercy are spared. So we see with Rahab and those with her. And that is the hope for the world today. We, God's people, hide ourselves in the new Joshua, who is Jesus Christ. Now, we don't wage war against flesh and blood, as the Scriptures tell us, but on principalities, on forces of darkness and evil, through prayer, through a consecrated and holy life devoted to Christ and His way. And like that Joshua, our Joshua has conquered, not only as a first fruits, but the whole land. Every square inch of all of creation, King Jesus looks down and says, that is mine. And this, our greater Joshua, calls us, his people, to follow him in taking dominion over all of creation, to spread his holiness to the far reaches of the earth. See, Jericho models for us and moves us in our mission to consecrate ourselves as we seek to consecrate the world around us, which is why we devote ourselves to the raising of young families. It doesn't seem like much in the day-to-day, but we're shaping the next generations, helping them to shape their future generations as well, whether it's be mentoring the younger ones, whether it's teaching or feeding. We're raising a consecrated people to work for the redemption of the world beginning in our midst. That's why we also work with other Christians, other churches, other uh, Christian organizations, because as our epistle reading says, Christ has broken down the wall of hostility, that we might be united in Christ to reconcile all things to God through Him, to redeem culture in Christ. We praise God that Roe v. Wade has been overturned in our society, but we recognize very clearly that the battle for dignity and life rages on. We don't place our trust in political parties or politicians who ultimately fail. Our hope is in the God who tears down the walls of hostility and the hard hearts of rebellion. Now, what happened to Israel will happen to the land, and we'll see that over the next few weeks together. But so it is with the body of Christ. As we go, so goes the land. Our God is a consuming fire. And our only hope for life is to pass through that altar fire, hiding ourselves in God's prophet, the true and final Joshua, who is Jesus Christ. 
We too pass through the waters of judgment. We too are given a feast in the land where we feast on the body and the blood of the lamb to commune with the living God. So our prayer becomes this. May he do with us as he sees fit that we might redeem the world around us. Indeed, he, he might redeem the whole world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word, and we thank you that your mercy is in the midst of your wrath, that we trust your grace and your provision for us. These stories are hard, Lord, and so we, help you, we ask you to help us not only to understand them, but to sit in these stories of your work in the world that has fallen, that is broken. Guide us as we seek to redeem the world around us, as we are reconciled to you in Jesus Christ. Give us strength courage, and grace to meet the needs of our day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.